Section 30 of A Visit to the Holy Land. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 15 of A Visit to the Holy Land, Egypt and Italy, Part 2. By Ida L. Pfeiffer. Excursion to the Pyramids of Giza, August 25, 1842. At four in the afternoon I quitted Cairo, crossed two arms of the Nile, and a couple of hours afterwards arrived safely at Giza. As the Nile had overflowed several parts of the country, we were compelled frequently to turn out of our way, and sometimes to cross canals and ride through water. Now and then, where it was too deep for our asses, we were obliged to be carried across. As there is no inn at Giza, I betook myself to Herr Klinger, to whom I brought a letter of recommendation from Cairo. Herr K. is a Bohemian by birth, and stands in the service of the Viceroy of Egypt, as musical instructor to the young military band. I was made very welcome here, and Herr Klinger seemed quite rejoiced at seeing a visitor with whom he could talk in German. Our conversation was of Beethoven and Mozart, of Strauss and Lana. The fame of the Bravera composers of the present day, Liszt and Talberg, had not yet penetrated to these regions. I requested my kind host to show me the establishment for hatching eggs that exists at Giza. He immediately sent for the superintendent, who happened, however, to be absent, and to have locked up the keys. In this place about eight thousand eggs are hatched by artificial warmth during the months of March and April. The eggs are laid on large flat plates, which are continually kept at an equal temperature by heat applied below the surface. They are turned several times during the day. As the thousands of little chicks burst their shells, they are sold not by number or weight, but by the measure. This egg-hatching house has the effect of rendering poultry plentiful and cheap. After chatting away the evening very pleasantly, I sought my couch, tired with my ride and with the heat, and rejoicing at the sight of the soft divan, which seemed to smile upon me and promise rest and strength for the following day. But as I was about to take possession of my couch, I noticed on the wall a great number of black spots. I took the candle to examine what it could be, and nearly dropped the light with horror on discovering that the wall was covered with bugs. I had never seen such a disgusting sight. All hopes of rest on the divan were now effectively put to flight. I sat down on a chair, and waited until everything was perfectly still. Then I slipped into the entrance hall, and lay down on the stones, wrapped in my cloak. Though I had escaped from one description of vermin, I became a prey to innumerable gnats. I had passed many uncomfortable nights during my journey, but this was worse than anything I had yet endured. However, this was only an additional inducement for rising early, and long before sunrise I was ready to continue my journey. Before daybreak I took leave of my kind host, and rode with my servant towards the gigantic structures. Today we were again obliged frequently to go out of our route on account of the rising of the Nile. Owing to this delay, two hours elapsed before we reached the broad arm of the Nile, dividing us from the Libyan desert, on which the pyramids stand, and over which two Arabs carried me. This was one of the most disagreeable things that can be imagined. Two powerful men stood side by side. I mounted on their shoulders and held fast by their heads, while they supported my feet in a horizontal position above the waters, 
which at some places reached almost to their armpits, so that I feared every moment that I should sit in the water. Besides this, my supporters continually swayed to and fro, because they could only withstand the force of the current by a great exertion of strength, and I was apprehensive of falling off. This disagreeable passage lasted above a quarter of an hour. After waiting for another fifteen minutes through deep sand, we arrived at the goal of our little journey. The two colossal pyramids are, of course, visible directly we quit the town, and we keep them almost continually in sight. But here the expectations I had cherished were once again disappointed, for the aspect of these giant structures did not astonish me greatly. Their height appears less remarkable than it otherwise would, from the circumstance that their base is buried in sand, and thus hidden from view. There is also neither a tree nor a hut, nor any other object which could serve to display their huge proportions by the force of contrast. As it was still early in the day, and not very hot, I preferred ascending the pyramid before venturing into its interior. My servant took off my rings and concealed them carefully, telling me— that this was a very necessary precaution, as the fellows who take the travellers by the hands to assist them in mounting the pyramids have such a dexterous knack of drawing the rings from their fingers that they seldom perceive their loss until too late. I took two Arabs with me, who gave me their hands, and pulled me up the very large stones. Any one who was at all subject to dizziness would do very wrong in attempting this feat, for he might be lost without remedy." Let the reader picture to himself a height of five hundred feet, without railing or a regular staircase by which to make the ascent. At one angle only of the immense blocks of stone have been hewn in such a manner that they form a flight of steps, but a very inconvenient one, as many of these stone blocks are above four feet in height, and offer no projection on which you can place your foot in mounting. The two Arabs ascended first, and then stretched out their hands to pull me from one block to another. I preferred climbing over the smaller blocks without assistance. In three-quarters of an hour's time I had gained the summit of the pyramid. For a long time I stood lost in thought, and could hardly realize the fact that I was really one of the favored few who are happy enough to be able to contemplate the most stupendous and imperishable monument ever erected by human hands. At the first moment I was scarcely able to gaze down from the dizzy height into the deep distance. I could only examine the pyramid itself, and seek to familiarize myself with the idea that I was not dreaming. Gradually, however, I came to myself, and contemplated the landscape which lay extended beneath me. From my elevated position I could form a better estimate of the gigantic structure, for here the fact that the base was buried in sand did not prejudice the general effect. I saw the Nile flowing far beneath me, and a few Bedouins, whom curiosity had attracted to the spot, looked like very pygmies. In ascending I had seen the immense blocks of stone singly, and ceased to marvel that these monuments are reckoned among the seven wonders of the world. On the castle the view had been fine, but here, where the prospect was bounded only by the horizon and by the Makatan mountains, it is grander by far. I could follow the windings of the river, with its innumerable arms and canals, until it melted into the far horizon, which closed the picture on this side. Many blooming gardens, and the large, extensive town with its environs, the immense desert with its plains and hills of sand, and the lengthened mountain range of Makatam, 
all lay spread before me, and for a long time I sat gazing around me, and wishing that the dear ones at home had been with me to share in my wonder and delight. But now the time came not only to look down, but to descend. Most people find this even more difficult than the ascent, but with me the contrary was the case. I never grow giddy, and so I advanced in the following manner, without the aid of the Arabs. On the smaller blocks I sprang from one to the other, when a stone of three or four feet in height was to be encountered, I let myself glide gently down, and I accomplished my descent with so much grace and agility that I reached the base of the pyramid long before my servant. Even the Arabs expressed their pleasure at my fearlessness on this dangerous passage. After eating my breakfast and resting for a short time, I proceeded to explore the interior. At first I was obliged to cross a heap of sand and rubbish, for we have to go downwards towards the entrance, which is so low and narrow that we cannot always stand upright. I could not have passed along the passage leading into the interior if the Arabs had not helped me, for it is so steep and so smoothly paved that, in spite of my conductor's assistance, I slid rather than walked. The apartment of the king is more spacious, and resembles a small hall. On one side stands a little empty sarcophagus without a lid. The walls of the chambers and of the passages are covered with large and beautifully polished slabs of granite and marble. The remaining passages, or rather dens, which are shown here, I did not see. It may be very interesting for learned men and antiquarians thus to search every corner, but for a woman like myself, brought hither only by an insatiable desire to travel, and capable of judging of the beauties of nature and art only by her own simple feelings, it was enough to have ascended the pyramid of Cheops, and to have seen something of its interior. This pyramid is said to be the loftiest of all. It stands on a rock one hundred and fifty feet in height, which is invisible, being altogether buried in sand. The height of the vast structure is above five hundred feet. It was erected by Cheops more than three thousand years ago, and one hundred thousand men are said to have been employed in its construction for twenty-six years. It is a most interesting structure, built of immense masses of rock, fixed together with a great deal of art, and seemingly calculated to last an eternity. They look so strong and so well preserved, that many travellers will no doubt repair hither in coming generations, and continue the researches commenced long ago. The Sphinx, a statue of most colossal dimensions, situate at no great distance from the Great Pyramid, is so covered with sand that only the head and a small portion of the bust remain visible. The head alone is twenty-two feet in height. After walking about and inspecting everything, I commenced my journey back. On the way I once more visited Herr Klinger, strengthened myself with a hearty meal, and arrived safely at Cairo late in the evening. Here I wished to take my little purse out of my pocket, and found that it was gone. Luckily I had taken only one colonato, Spanish dollar, with me. No one can imagine what dexterity the Bedouins and Arabs possess in the art of stealing. I always kept a sharp eye upon my effects, and notwithstanding my vigilance several articles were pilfered from me, and my purse must also have been stolen during this excursion. The loss was very disagreeable to me, because it involved that of my box-key. I was, however, fortunate in finding an expert Arabian locksmith, who opened my chest and made me a new key, 
on which occasion I had another opportunity of seeing how careful it is necessary to be in all our dealings with these people to avoid being cheated. The key locked and unlocked my box well, and I paid for it, but immediately afterwards observed that it was very slightly joined in the middle, and would presently break. The Arab's tools still lay on the ground. I immediately seized one of them, and told the man I would not give it up until he made me a new key. It was in vain that he assured me he could not work without his tools. He would not give my money back, and I kept the implement. By this means I obtained from him a new and a good key. End of section 30